to 16. Salt slows down decay. Light drives darkness away. But left to ourselves, things we only get worse. Things only get worse in this world. That's the picture that Paul, the Apostle Paul, paints in Romans 1. God giving people over to do what they want to do in their wicked hearts. But God is not intimidated by evil. God is still the sovereign ruler of this world. He's in charge. He permits wickedness to go on for a certain time, but he won't allow it to continue forever. God will certainly act to bring wickedness to an end. How does he do that? He does it in two ways. What are those ways? Well, either the first way is this, God acts in judgment and to punish sinful people. That's one way that he brings wickedness to an end. And the other way is that God acts not in judgment, but in mercy to save sinful people and to make them righteous. And we see God acting in both of those ways in Genesis 6, verse 13. Just looking back to that for a moment, Genesis 6, verse 13, it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. There it is. God promising judgment on the world, and God showing mercy to Noah and his family, giving Noah good news of the way to be saved. Time was running out for the world. God has set, at this point, a time limit of 120 years for mankind. You can read that in Genesis 6, verse 3. And now that time was first running out. And in Genesis 7, God's judgment was just around the corner. And time is running out for the world that we live in today. God's judgment is coming, not by water this time, but by fire. Jesus is coming back. You can read about it in 2 Peter 3 and many other places in the Old and the New Testament. God is going to hold people to account for ignoring him and going their own Way. We don't know, none of us knows when this judgment will come, but come it certainly will. Have you realised that? It's so easy for us to brush these thoughts aside, to be taken up with the here and now, daily life, our next holiday, the things we want to do, our bucket lists and so on. To be taken up with those ordinary, everyday things. We need to wake up. Wake up, everyone. That's the message here in Genesis 7. The message of Noah's flood, or rather God's flood, which Noah experienced. It's a wake-up call for all of us. That's the way that the Lord Jesus and the New Testament writers used the history of Noah. And it is history. It's not a myth or legend. So let's think for a while about Noah, first of all, as an example to us. What do we see in Noah? Well, we see a persevering servant, 
persevering servant. Noah held on to his faith in God while the world around him grew more and more wicked and violent. And he faithfully proclaimed God's righteousness to a hostile society, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. Noah obeyed God's instructions and built the ark to the design that God gave him, Genesis 6, 22. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. As the world around us grows increasingly wicked, we, as individual Christians and as a church, we need to go on trusting God, go on believing him, go on loving one another and worshipping the Lord. We need to go on serving him. We need to go on being God's salt and light in the world. God is able to help us to persevere even through suffering. God's word is true, even when everyone around us believes lies. Our society rejects God as creator. Even organisations that go by the name of churches reject the Bible and follow human invented ways. But we needn't be shaken. We need to be faithful as Christians. God has not left us alone. He has promised not to abandon those who trust in him. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 8, 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That age that started when Jesus was on the earth and continues until he comes again. The writer to the Hebrews reminds outnumbered, suffering, despised and discouraged Christians. He reminds them of the promises of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 13 Verse 5, he himself, the Lord Jesus himself, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We need to get on and to do the work that God has given us. None of us, of course, is building an ark, but God has given us, <coughs> every single one of us who knows the Lord, given us work to do for him. Even our ordinary, everyday responsibilities at home and in our other places of work or study are for the Lord's. We're not our own. We're here for the Lord's. We're living by faith, serving the Lord Jesus, being light in the darkness. Our labour is not in vain in the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. One day we will see the Lord Jesus face to face, and then we'll know in our own experience that it's all been worthwhile. And now the ark was finished. <clears throat> How long had Noah been building the ark? Well, it's a common misunderstanding that it was 120 years. But that's in fact the time limit that God gave for mankind. Back in Genesis 6, verse 3, it's not the length of time that Noah was given to build the ark. The Bible doesn't in fact say how long Noah had, but it does give us enough information to work out the maximum time that Noah had. So let's do some math. So those of you, particularly uh, new children, uh, want you to pay attention and do some maths from the Bible. 
And it says in Genesis 6 that when God told Noah to build the ark, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were already married. The three sons that he had, and they were all already married. Genesis 6, verse 18. And he turns to it, but Genesis 11, verse 10, says that Shem, Noah's son Shem, had a son two years after the flood, when he was a hundred. So, how long was Shem born before the flood? A hundred, take away two. Which of the children wants to tell me the answer to that question? A hundred, yes, Elias, I thought you might. Pardon? Ninety-eight, that, that's right. hundred, take away two, ninety-eight <coughs> years before the flood, Shem was born. And the Bible also tells us that Ham was Noah's youngest son, chapter 9, verse 24. Let's say that Ham was born only a year or two after Shem. There's a very narrow gap between Shem and Ham. Well, how many years before the flood was Ham born then? So 98, let's say 98, take away 2. What's that? Yes, Adrian? 96. Good, you're on the ball. 96 years before the flood, Ham was born. Well, let's assume that Ham married very young, when he was only 20 years old. How many years before the flood did Ham get married? 96, take away 20. Someone. Yes, Elias. 76, good, four marks. 76 years before the flood. If Ham married young and he was born only two years after Shem, 76 years before the flood. So, if God told Noah to build the ark just after Ham got married, it would leave at most around 76, or perhaps in round numbers, let's say, 75 years for building the ark. And it could have been much less, because the Bible doesn't actually tell us. So that means that for at least around 45 years after God gave that 120-year time limit for mankind, Noah knew that God's judgment was coming. But he didn't know how he and his family would be saved. Judgment was coming. Noah knew that. God had said 120 years and the clock was ticking. But he didn't know how he and his family would be saved. Yet still, Noah went on trusting God. He went on walking, uh, walking with God, as it says in Genesis 6, verse 9. When at last God did tell Noah the details of how to be saved from the coming judgment, Noah obeyed God. Noah took hold of the way of salvation that God had appointed for him and his family. We need to learn from Noah's example. To stop playing around. To take God's message of judgment seriously and to act on his message of mercy. That's what shaped Noah's whole life and it needs to shape ours too. Jesus is coming back. God's judgment is on the way. God has told us how to be saved by believing in Jesus, his son, and turning from our sins. What are you doing with God's message of mercy in Jesus Christ? You can't sleepwalk to heaven. 
None of us can sleepwalk to heaven. If you don't take action, you personally, God's judgment will take you by surprise, either when you die or when Jesus comes back. Noah was a persevering servant. But for the main part of this message this morning, I want to just answer this question. Here's a question. Why were Noah and his family saved? Why were Noah and his family saved? Genesis 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So the reason given here that Noah and his family were saved is that God had seen that Noah was righteous before him. Now we need to think about this carefully. Was Noah saved because he was a good man? That's what we might think just by reading that verse quickly, casually reading that verse, that Noah was saved because he was a good man. But no, Noah wasn't saved because of his own goodness. That's a misunderstanding that many people have. They hope to go to heaven because of their own good deeds. They think, well, I'm not as bad as that person I could tell you about. I think I'm, all, I'm okay, really. But the problem is that no one is good enough for God. The rest of the Bible makes it clear. God has standards that we can never meet. And in God's eyes, Romans 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned, that's me and you, everyone in this room, everyone alive on the planet today. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Noah, too, was a sinner. The Bible doesn't hide that from us. You can see it for yourself in Genesis 9. How then could God say to Noah, I have seen that you are righteous? I want to point out three reasons why God could say that. The first reason is God's grace. That's the most basic reason why God could say to Noah, I have seen that you are righteous. God's grace. Chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Or Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. What made the difference for Noah, what distinguished him from all those around him, was sheer grace. God had chosen to show favour to Noah. What is that favour? What is that grace? Well, it's kindness that we don't deserve. Kindness from God that we don't deserve. God had chosen Noah and his family to be saved. And that's the only reason that anyone is saved. It's the only reason I'm saved. The only reason anyone here today is saved. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 7, it's by the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
not the results of works, so that no one may boast. Here is Noah, a sinner, and God says to him, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. How can that be? Well, it's because of God's grace. That's the reason of reasons. All the other reasons flow from that. That's the foundation reason why God could say that Noah is righteous, because God has been gracious to him. The second reason God could say that is God's provision of a sacrifice. God's provision of a sacrifice. If you look, there's a clue in the next verse. Verse 2, it says, God says to Noah, you shall take with you seven or each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Well, before this, in chapter 6, God has told Noah that two of every kind of animal would be saved in the ark or a single pair of each kind, male and female. But of some kinds, God now tells Noah that there to be seven, or possibly seven pairs, as the ESV translates it. I'm not quite sure which is, is in mind here. Seven individual animals or seven pairs of animals. Why so many of these particular animals and birds? The answer is in chapter 8, verse 20, after the flood. If God says that this is what happened after the flood, Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when God smelled the pleasing aroma, it goes on. These animals and birds were the kinds appointed for sacrifice by God. That's why there needed to be more than two each of these animals. So some could be offered to God in sacrifice, while others of them reproduce, so there would never be a shortage of these animals and birds. Later on, God gave laws to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, and there he designated certain animals as clean, and those were the animals that the Israelites were allowed to eat. Unclean ones were the, the animals they weren't allowed to eat. So mark them out as God's special people. But it was only after the flood that God told Noah that he gave mankind meat to eat at all. That he gave them all living things to eat for food. And when God said that to Noah in Genesis 9, he made no distinction at that point between clean and unclean or food that only came through Moses later on. All animals and birds and fish were given to mankind to eat in Genesis 9. So what was the purpose of God calling some animals clean and others unclean? Because those that God had marked out as clean were marked out by God for a special purpose. What was that purpose? Well, it was sacrifice. These were the animals and birds chosen by God to be used for sacrifices. They were part of the way for people to worship God. What was happening here? Well, God was providing atonement for Noah's sin. 
a way for Noah and his family to be forgiven. These sacrifices pointed the way to Jesus, who would one day come and suffer for Noah's sins and for the sins of every man and woman and boy and girl that God would save throughout history. That's how God could look at Noah and see a righteous man. Because of God's grace, because of God's provision of a sacrifice for his sins. Noah's sins were to be paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross. And Noah was trusting in God's provision of sacrifices that pointed to that one and only sacrifice that can truly take away our sins. So those are two reasons why God could say that he saw Noah as a righteous man. Reason number three. How did Noah actually receive this standing, this status before God as righteous? That, this is the third reason why God could say that Noah was righteous. What is it? It's faith. Faith. You can't see electricity, even if you look with the most powerful microscope, you can't see electricity, but you can see the things that electricity does. Children, hands up how many of you have an electric toy? How many of you have an electric toy? Perhaps a Lego uh, thing? Any, anybody have a mix owning an electric toy? I think John has. Yes. Okay. A number of you do. Perhaps a Lego crane or, or maybe a truck that's powered by batteries. Well, can you tell by looking at the batteries if they have any electricity left? Can you tell that? There's electricity in those batteries. I can tell those batteries have electricity in. Well, how do you know? If you can't tell by looking at them, how do you know? Well, it's if you press the switch and the motor turns. Then you know that there's electricity left inside those batteries. And it's like that with faith. You can't see faith, but you can see the things that faith does, that the person who has faith does. Genesis tells us what Noah did because he had faith in God. It tells us how Noah walked with God, how he took hold of God's way of salvation and built an ark. He obeyed God, Noah obeyed God, because he believed what God had told him. Now in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, it tells us clearly about Noah. Here with Noah is faith in action. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah took God's warning of judgment seriously. And that's what faith does. Faith is believing God, not just in theory, not just agreeing that what God says is true, but in reality, taking action that God commands. If someone tells you your house is on fire and you say, yes, I believe you, 
but you don't do anything about it, well, that person doesn't really believe it's a serious situation, do they? If someone says your house is on fire and that person runs out of the house, well, they really believe that message. Faith believes that what God says about judgment is true. Faith believes that what God says about mercy through Jesus Christ is true. For Noah, faith meant believing what God told him. Believing it meant building an ark so that he and his family could be saved. It meant taking war, the clean animals, with him so that he could offer God sacrifices. Hebrews 11 tells us for sure the righteousness that Noah had is the righteousness that comes by faith. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness, this righteousness, was not something that Noah produced. It was something that he <coughs> inherited. Now, boys and girls, again, if you inherit something, that perhaps means you have a relative who dies, and uh, they give to you, they leave something to you, and you inherit it. Well, when you inherit something, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you just, it's a free gift to you. And righteousness is what Noah inherited by faith, by believing God. Noah, the righteousness that saved Noah, was not his own good works. It was a righteousness that he received by faith in God. So we can say of Noah, that what God said of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, was true also of Noah. Noah believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the only way for any of us to have a righteous standing with God. It's a righteousness received by faith, not something we've worked up ourselves. It's righteousness put in our bank balance, put on our account that we didn't produce or earn. It's a righteousness that is given to us by God. In technical language, it's imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of us by the work of Jesus Christ. God treats us as though we had lived the way that Jesus lived, even though we have. That is what gives us a righteous standing before God. That imputed righteousness, not the imparted righteousness that God helps us to grow in as we learn to love God and to obey Him with the help of the Holy Spirit. We must never forget that as Christians. Remember that, Christian, next time you're brought face to face with your own sins and failure to honour God. Don't despair. It's not your good works that save you. It's simply faith. Faith alone. Faith not in ourselves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is a sufficient saviour. He will go on saving you all the way through to the end. He is able to save, Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Hebrews 7, 
and the instruction of the Lord. Mothers, you too share that responsibility for your children. Timothy was saved because his mother and grandmother instructed him in the truth. From childhood, he knew those scriptures that were able to make him wise for salvation. 2 Timothy 5, and verse, I missed the reference there, sorry, chapter 3, verse 15, and 2 Timothy as well. Those verses were there. Christian parents must instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. They do it by word, by example. They do it by disciplining their children when they disobey. They do it by delighting in their children and giving them good gifts, just as our Father in Heaven gives us good gifts that we don't deserve. Your obedience to God will be a blessing to your family too. You can be God's means that your family will be saved. Paul told Timothy that by paying attention to God's word, that he would save both himself and his hearers. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you'll be the one who actually saves your children. Only Jesus can do that. You can't give them faith. God can. But God uses means. And one of the means that God uses to save children is faithful parents. Parents who fear God and his message of judgment and who point their children to God's mercy and love. Children, you need to pay attention to your parents and to believe on the Lord Jesus yourselves. It's no good just knowing about God's lifeboat, you actually need to get on board, to confess your own sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, some people here may have children who have grown up and aren't yet saved. Well, don't give up praying for them. And many parents' prayers are, are answered after many years, and sometimes even after they have died. Uh, Keith Maudsley was a retired pastor who preached regularly in this church many years ago. It was a great blessing uh, to us. And it was only after Keith died that his son came to faith in Jesus. Marjorie, his wife, is still alive to rejoice on earth. But for Keith, there will be added joy in heaven. John Newton's mother died when he was only six, and yet God heard his mother's prayer and blessed her teaching. And even though John went deep into sin, even becoming a slave trader, God saved him. And John went on to become a shepherd and a teacher of God's people and wrote many hymns, including Amazing Grace. Our Christian parents have a particular responsibility but we all have a responsibility towards other people, towards our brothers and sisters, towards our friends, towards our fellow members of the body of Christ, to love them and to point them to Jesus. Well, Noah demonstrated to his family that he took God's warning of judgment and God's message of mercy seriously. Noah acted upon it. Noah led his family to take God's provision. We need to do that. This message, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, 
must shape our whole way of thinking, our whole way of living. These things are real. Our sins are real. God's anger against sin is real. God's judgment really is coming. God's mercy is real. Jesus really did die on the cross and rise again from the dead. And Jesus really is coming back to judge this world and to bring his people to be with him forever. Wake up. Don't be asleep. Don't play at being a Christian. Take these things seriously. Take action for your own sake and for the sake of others. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from Noah, that you would help us to believe your word as he believed it, to lay hold of your way of salvation as he, in his way, in his time, laid hold of it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, thank you that we now can look back and see what he has done for us, just as Noah looked forward to what he would do. We can look back and know that the Lord Jesus is our Saviour. Help us, each one, to turn to him in our hearts. Help us to not be those who are sleepwalking around in this world, filling our time and our minds with all kinds of other things, but neglecting this great salvation that has been revealed to us. We pray that you will be merciful to each one of us, that every one of us would receive that forgiveness of our sins from you, that righteous standing from God for eternity. Help us as Christians to remember what you have done for us, not to trust in our own righteousness, not to despair when we find again that we are sinners. Help us to confess our sins and to know that you are faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we stand before you, not in ourselves, but as we are in Christ. Help us to build on these things, help these things to shape our lives, that we may live with purpose and with hope and with joy in this world. Help us in our families to honour you, help us to point others to the Saviour, to live before others in the power of the Holy Spirit and to be your instruments to do good in this world, even to draw others to yourself. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.